0: The question is asked in verse 14 of chapter 9, what shall we say then? I'm reading from the New American Standard 2020. It says, there is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy and I will show compassion to whomever I will show compassion. So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So, Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this difficult passage. And, Lord, that you would help us to to really apprehend your heart in this and an understanding of who you are, the fact that you are a just God and that you are a loving God. And you are a God yet that has mercy upon whom you will have mercy and you show compassion to whomever you show compassion to. And so, Lord, first of all, we thank you for the mercy and the compassion that you have shown us. Lord, we pray for those whom we love, whom either we know, do not know you, or we just wonder about their relationship to you. And we pray, Lord, this morning for your compassion and your mercy upon them. Lord, whenever we go to a passage like this, I I don't think we can help but to carry them very heavily on our hearts. So, Lord, even this morning, whatever they're doing, we pray that your Holy Spirit would break through and begin to speak and continue to speak and continue to minister to them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Where I'm going to land this morning, thank you. where I'm going to land the, oh yeah, that's a, thank you. <laughs> it ha- yeah, it has an attitude. Oh, it's the right one. Okay. Where I'm going to land this morning is in um, Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For it says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up in uh, in order to demonstrate my power in you. I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. It's a Septuagint version of the book of Exodus, chapter 9, verse 16, which says the same thing, that Pharaoh was raised up so that God could declare his power through him and in him, but mainly through him, in his engagement with him. And, and when, you, when you read this passage, or at least when I read this passage, In Romans 9, and I, I shared this with you a while back, I, I told you that we're going to barely be able to get through Romans 9 without coming out of here feeling that we're a bunch of Calvinists. Um, because if you read it plainly, it sounds like God raised him up simply to show his power and to demonstrate his sovereignty and that Pharaoh had no choice in the matter. To me, that's how it reads. If you read it within the context of this passage, if you read it within the context of the passage earlier of Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, that sounds very clear. And yet, the thing is, I think it's very important that when we look at any passage that is a direct reference to the old testament that that is a clue that we have to understand the backstory. We've got to understand the Old Testament backstory. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Who said that? I already told you, right? You remember? Who said that? Malachi said that. Malachi said that many, 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 many years after Jacob and Esau had passed away. It's not really a reference to Jacob and Esau as much as it is to their descendants. And this looking forward to how God is going to deal with their descendants, Jacob, which is Israel, Esau, who are the Edomites. And it it starts to, to really place this idea of election in a slightly different context. Now, Pharaoh, and we do not know which Pharaoh this was. There's guesses. It could possibly have been Seti the first, S-E-T-I, or Ramses the second. Your mileage may vary, as does historians. I'm not nearly as concerned about who it was, but, I, but, it, but how it was that God engaged with the Pharaoh. And it's important to understand that the Pharaoh was a representative, almost like a high priest, but not quite. Does that make sense? He was the representative of the false gods, Ra, R-A, and Ammon. Uh, and he held the divine order in the land of Egypt. It was very similar to later on as we see the establishment of the kings in Israel, then later Israel or Ephraim and Judah, that they were really representatives of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, they had whom to, not only did they have counselors, but particularly they had the prophets who spoke to them and helped guide them in, in their um, administration and oversight of the country. And, but without going down that trail too far, we read the purpose of God in dealing with Pharaoh is given to us also in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. I have it in front of me, and I'll read it to you. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell of the hearing of your son and your son's sons, the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. So all of this that took place in the deliverance of the nation of Israel or I should say the children of Israel at this point, they weren't the nation yet, they were constituted at Sinai. The deliverance of the of the children of Israel was was done in such a way that God would show Himself uh, strong and mighty because of the signs that He did, and He did some pretty strong signs uh, in, in the in the giving of how many plagues? You guys remember? Ten plagues, right? And what's interesting is, 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 the, is going into this. Now Moses, Moses is called in Exodus 3. Remember the story of the burning bush? Moses is called in, in Exodus 3 and God tells him, I've heard the cries uh, of the children of Israel and I've called you to deliver. I'm paraphrasing like crazy, of course. But, but um, he even tells him that perhaps... Pharaoh's not going to let him go. Perhaps Pharaoh won't let him go. And, and, and in other words, he's already preparing Moses for the long haul. You know, uh, it, and I don't know what Moses was thinking. I, I don't know what he was thinking. But it could have very well been that in the back of his mind, he thought he would just walk into Pharaoh and say, by the way, I'm from, I represent the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you need to let his people go. And Pharaoh would say, okay, I'll do it. They had enslaved Israel. A slavery, by the way, which Torah never condones. But they had enslaved Israel. And their whole economy had depended upon that slave labor. And and so God... God warns Moses ahead of time. He may not let them go, but I'm sending you. And and the interesting thing about this is that they go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh immediately says, well, well, who who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why should I let them go? It's interesting to me because he's saying, I do not know God, so why should I obey him? Follow where I'm going here. Is that a legitimate question? Is that a legitimate question? I think to some degree, to some degree, it is. It is. It's a logical question. It's not a very smart question spiritually. We do not know the secret thoughts and the inward meditations of Pharaoh during this time. And so some of this you have to presume But what happens almost immediately is that Pharaoh begins to harden his heart. There are two primary words that are used in this narrative in the book of Exodus. They essentially mean the same thing. The first word is the word kabad, which means to be heavy, to be burdensome, to be weighty, uh, it also uh, means to be glorious it 's a v- word that is used in different circumstances also a word that 's used at least the root of this word is used to describe the weightiness of the presence of God, which I find fascinating but but we are told we are told in in, in the book of exodus already that god said four twenty one God says, I'm going to harden his heart. He's already warning Moses that he's going to have to go through a pretty strong ordeal. God says, I'm going to harden his heart. What is interesting about that is initially God doesn't have to harden Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh... Hardens his own heart. In Exodus 7, 13 it tells us, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard, he refuses to let the people go. And this was after the first miracle that Moses and Aaron did. Remember the first miracle that they did? Moses goes in with the rod of God, and he lays down the rod of God, and what happens? it turns into a serpent. And I still remember Yul Brynner in that movie going, cheap, cheap magician's trick. And his sorcerers did the same thing with their rods, but what happened? The rod of God, which was a serpent, ate those two serpents from the sorcerers, and then Moses picks it up, and it turns into the rod of God again. It's interesting because in Exodus 7, it does not say that God hardened his heart. It simply says that God recognized that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's important to understand some of these distinctions. Now, what's interesting is that in Exodus seven thirteen, follow my thinking here because I, I, I it's almost hard for me to keep track of this, all right? Again, two words for the word hardened. The second word is the word hazak, It means to strengthen, harden, prevail, become strong. And and essentially it does mean the same thing as the first word, kabod. Now, I've had someone tell me, I've heard it more than once, well, there are two different words that describe Moses hardening his heart and God hardening Moses' heart. There isn't. There may be nuances in the verbal construction of those words. And I'm not well versed with Hebrew, so I I can't go any further than that for you. But essentially, it's the same word, same two words that are used interchangeably. That's a hard concept. Boy, the looks on your faces. That is a hard concept to wrap our brains around. Because it tells us, again, God prophesied, Exodus 4.21, that Moses would harden his heart. And then we read later in Exodus 7.13, Exodus 7.22, Exodus 8.19, and Exodus 9.35 that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We also, by the way, read that in Exodus 8.15, 32, 9.7, and 9.34. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. What, what really struck me is that it is not until later that God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. The first time we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, was in Exodus chapter 8, verse 32, where it tells us, actually it even tells us then that Pharaoh hardened his heart at that time at the, uh, the plague of the, the, the flies. But what what struck me was that there were several times that Pharaoh hardened his heart before God began to step in and harden his heart for him. We do see that uh, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. That was where I was supposed to go this time. It said, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord has spoken to Moses. This is after the sixth plague, the plague of boils. So Pharaoh begins to harden his heart, and finally at the sixth plague, God then hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then he'll continue to harden his heart. So that's the first thing we need to understand is that Pharaoh set this thing in motion, not God. Although, did God prophesy it back in Exodus 4? You're following my timeline here, right? Okay. What is... What struck me, and, and I would encourage you, I, 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 I sat down yesterday and just read this narrative, read it all the way through, as much as I could anyway, in one sitting to try to, and, and then I had trouble trying to find all the bits and pieces, so I, I had to spend some time here. Um, but he was warned. We never talk about this in Romans. Romans. You see, Paul writes Romans with, the, with an understanding that you understand the story of Pharaoh. But to really understand the story of Pharaoh, we really need to look into the scriptures and really spend some time and really read them. Pharaoh was w- warned. Now, when did God harden Pharaoh's heart after the sixth plague? Exodus 9. Verse 32. The plague of the boils. What's interesting is that we need to understand that he was born three times. Prior. Excuse me two times prior to God hardening his heart and one time afterward. It is really, in a sense, it, it falls in line, with, in my thinking, with, with the Jewish understanding of everything would be confirmed or, or, or uh, verified under the word of two or three witnesses. Because in, in Exodus chapter eight nineteen. First of all, his first warning is given to him by his magicians, by his sorcerers. Exodus eight nineteen. It says the magicians, now this is after the third plague. Now, I believe this is chronological. So that would tell me that the third plague happened before the sixth plague, right? Which is where God hardened his heart. So prior to God hardening his heart, he has warned. The plague of lice, third plague. And the magicians or the sorcerers said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. It's the finger of God, or you could even de- describe it as an act of God. They recognize that something divine is happening. They are under some form of divine judgment. They, they probably don't have the full picture. But they, they have enough to warn Pharaoh. And what did it say about Pharaoh? But his heart grew hard. And he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Because the Lord prophesied back in Exodus 4.21, before this whole thing completely started, that he's going to harden his heart, Moses. Moses. He was warned once. I haven't said it in a long time, but it's one, of my, one of my core beliefs is that, that as God gives us light, understanding, illumination, comprehension, as God gives us light, and in this case, this is the finger of God. Now that may not be a floodlight, it might just be a small flashlight that needs to have his batteries changed. But it is, to me, I look at this as definitely this is light. What a person does with the light will depend on whether God gives them more light or not. As we respond to God in the light he has given us, I believe he gives us more light. If we turn to darkness, I think he pursues us. But at some point, according to what we read in Genesis chapter 6, God told whom? Noah, my spirit will not always strive with man. So he's warned. You could say he's even rebuked. That's Exodus 19. Excuse me, Exodus 8, verse 19. Then later on in the same chapter, in Exodus 8, verses 29 through 32, I want to read it to you. This is after the seventh plague of hail, right? Oh, I'm in the wrong place. I apologize. Chapter 8, verse 29. This is after the fourth plague, the plague of flies, okay? Did I confuse you? Did I unconfuse you? Did you know I was confused? Okay. After the fourth plague, the plague of flies. Exodus chapter 8, verse 29. It says, then Moses said, indeed, I'm going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord. In other words, I will pray to God. Why? Because in verse 28, he said to, Pharaoh says to Moses, intercede for me. In other words, pray for me. He's starting to feel the weight of the fourth plague and the three subsequent plagues before that. says, I will entreat the Lord that the swarm of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, but Pharaoh did not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, I'm going to pray God, to the Lord, Pharaoh, that you will not be deceitful anymore because there were already a few times that he, he basically said, you know, if, if you make these plagues go away, I'll let your people go. And then what did he do? What did he do? He did the bait and switch. He changed his mind and hardened his heart. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh, verse 30, and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. What's really important here but, is what Moses says to Pharaoh. I've touched on it, I'm going to go back to it. He says, but let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He's saying that to whom? Pharaoh. He's saying to Pharaoh, honor your word. He's saying to Pharaoh, I'll pray for you. We'll get rid of uh, this plague. We'll get rid of these flies, but you have to honor your word. Something about, really in both Testaments, but particularly the Old Testament about making a vow and then keeping it. Moses warns him, even rebukes him. Second time. Thirdly, Exodus 10, right around verse 7. It is the eighth plague, the plague of the locusts, where they just came in and just destroyed everything, destroyed all the crops. And in verse 7, it says that Pharaoh's servants, now this is after God has hardened his heart, by the way. I mentioned that earlier. It says that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? They're talking about Moses. Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed. They've gone through now eight plagues. The country is a wreck. And they warn him a third time. And yet he still did not heed that warning. It wasn't until the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, that he finally let the nation of Israel go. And then even after that, God hardens his heart again in chapter 14, and he gets, and he hardens the heart of the people of Egypt in chapter 14. And you remember the story after the, the nation of Israel had left Egypt, what happened? They went after them and they pursued them. Which is why we have the miracle of the Red Sea, where God opened up the Red Sea and they crossed through on dry land. He was rebuked three times. And the interesting thing about this that struck me was in his attempts to compromise. His attempts to compromise. Essentially, he got on, let's make a deal. And he wanted to play, let's make a deal with God. And he was willing to trade in that box for what was behind door number one, right? Or curtain number one. And, and he attempts to compromise. And he, he does so in, in, in um, really, through, throughout the book of Exodus. But in, in, in Exodus chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. He says to uh, Moses, entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people. Okay, we're going back to the second plague. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses that they may remain in the river only. And so he said, this is strange to me. Your whole land is covered with frogs. Can you imagine being in here and there's frogs everywhere? You go out in the parking lot, there's frogs everywhere. You know, you go get in your car and there's frogs in your car. And he says, well, and so he says to Moses, do it tomorrow. Do it tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And so, of course, Moses prays. And and the frogs are are they end up dying and the whole land smells with dead frog that must have been a wonderful thing. Um, but he does so in a way that he's attempting to compromise. And God fulfills what he asks, and then what does he do? He hardens his heart. Exodus eight twenty five. He tells him to go to sacrifice uh, in the land. In other words. God told them to let Israel go, to let them go, to let all their possessions go, to let all their animals go, and that they would go three days traveling into the wilderness to sacrifice and worship him. He said, you know what, I'll let you go, I'll let you sacrifice to God, but do it here in Egypt. That's what he says at the back part of chapter 8. So he's compromising yet again. And then again in chapter 8, Verse 28, he, he, he says to Moses, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to, to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but don't go too far. Just kind of just just maybe go out a little bit past the high school, you know, in national forest land, right? Same idea. Don't, don't do that three-day journey. Just, just, don't, just go for a little bit. And, and don't go too far, because why? They want to recapture him, no doubt. In Exodus 10, verses uh, 8 through 10, it, it's not entirely clear in the reading, but, but you get it later on in the book, is, is that he, he was going to let Israel go, but he wanted to keep the younger generation. So all your old people go, you're, you're not good at making bricks anyway. I need these young people to make bricks for me. So again, he uses that compromise as well. And then later in Exodus 10, verse 24, he tells them you can go, but I want you to leave all your flocks here. So you have this interaction where he was recognizing the work of God on his life, but he was not willing to submit wholly and fully. And because he did not want to submit wholly and fully, he hardened his heart, and God essentially says, if this is what you want, then this is what you get. Proverbs 29, 1 says that he who is often rebuked, hardens his neck, will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Proverbs 29, verse 1. So we had Pharaoh who was doing really this tap dance with God in the compromises or the proposed compromises. He was using half measures. Kind of like Pilate when he wanted to release Jesus. Pilate really wanted to release Jesus. But he attempted a half measure by trying to get him released due to clemency rather than because he was innocent. When he brought Jesus before the crowd because of the custom that they would the feast, they would release one prisoner. And he hoped that they would cry for Jesus. Therefore, he could show Jesus clemency. And what happened? They cried out for Barabbas instead. Instead of doing the right thing by releasing Jesus because he had already declared him what? He'd already declared him innocent. I find no fault in this man. That's what the whole act of the basin was all about, where he's washing his hands. But he went with half measures. Pharaoh is doing somewhat of the same thing, but how often it is do we know people, how often it is that you and I do these things. He was warned three times, and yet he did not repent. Twice before God hardened his heart, a third time after God hardened his heart. He was often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. God knew it. God prophesied it in advance. And yet I believe in reality, Pharaoh still had a choice. Still had a choice. Therefore, he's responsible. Therefore verse 14 of Romans 9, what shall we say then there is no injustice with God is there far from it? I believe he could have repented, but he chose not to and he chose to do this this, this compromise with God where I, I could I can get myself on God's side but not submit to his lordship. It's almost like when I used to hear it years ago when I was young, this idea of accepting Christ as a form of fire insurance rather than giving him your life and making him the Lord of your life. It's an interesting thing because so many commentators have said it too that the same sun in the sky it melts ice but it also hardens clay. It melts ice but it hardens clay. And and there's a lot you could make of that and again it's it's a saying, it's not scripture so we also want to be careful with that analogy. But are, are we in a place that we are submitted to the will and to the lordship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? In the book of Jude, I, I, as I thought about this, in the book of Jude, chapter, well, it's chapter one. There's only one chapter. So the 21st verse in Jude, it says, to keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life life, to keep yourself in the love of God. The admonition that is there, and I believe it's very strong, is a calling for each of us to continue in our faithfulness to him. What what does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? not an easy question, is it? Pharaoh had it confronted to him full force, and he did not keep himself in the love of God. He kept himself in the love of Pharaoh. And it didn't work out real well for him, did it? I I, I think as I I thought about this verse, and and I... I could almost do a part two just on this verse, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. Maybe next week, but probably not. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to stop. But, but what is your identity? What does it mean to keep ourselves in the love of God? What does it mean to be submitted to his will? What does it mean to recognize his lordship in our lives? What does it mean to, to, to be a person of the kingdom of God? And as I, as I thought about this, uh, as I thought about this, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think that it's not so much maybe the conclusions that we have about life as it is the process and the lens by which we use to view life. Are we viewing life through a kingdom perspective? Or are we viewing life through some type of a carnal perspective that we dress up and try to make like Christian? When in reality, it's, it's really not Christian. It's a form of Christian. It's a form of compromise. Like Pharaoh compromised with God and, and got where? Nowhere. He got nowhere. Because he wasn't willing to take off his pair of glasses and to put on a pair of glasses by which he would see the reality of his environment, his life, his culture through the lens of the kingdom of God. See, I think there is a huge application here for us. And, and we read this in Romans 9 and we stumble over the whole predestination thing when in reality there is so much more at stake. There is so much more for us to really consider than whether did God choose him for that or not or maybe, you know, th- yes that's important but that is is second secondary to, to being in a place where we're allowing the spirit of God to wash over our hearts and to really give us an understanding and we really live in a Christian life where we're just kind of making it up as we go and kind of adding here and there to, to parts of our lives. What is your worldview? What is your worldview? We live in difficult times. Talking with a friend the other day, this is some of the worst that I think I've ever lived in in my entire life. Challenging anyway. And yet, there's 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 lots of of reasons to say there are also glimmers of hope. But how am I going to navigate these times? From a kingdom perspective? Which, quite frankly, at times will cause me to do things or to submit to things or to give things up that I don't really want to give up. The call to take up your cross daily To deny yourself and to follow Jesus at times is just incredibly difficult. But nonetheless, that is our call. And there are times that I think God has me doing things and I'm doing them. He's dragging me, kicking and screaming. Some of you started to laugh because you've been there. But nonetheless, I'm still attempting to do those things. and I'm still attempting to be faithful, and I still want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because again, verse 18, Romans 9, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. I want to continually be in the place where I can be a recipient of God's mercy in my life rather than hardening my heart and and resisting the grace of God, resisting the Spirit of God, quenching the Spirit of God. And so it goes back to the question, what is my identity? What do I read about? What do I rant about on Facebook? What is my identity? Am I seeing things through the lens of the kingdom of God or some other kingdom? Because that one verse, and, <sighs> known it for years, sang it for years, even sing it in Good News Club with the kids, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That is a verse that is incredibly full with meaning. Are we truly seeking first the kingdom of God? And if we are, are we truly trusting that all these things, whatever those things are, will be added to us? That's my hope and prayer for each of us. We seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, his justice, And all these things will be added unto us. There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. And may our lives be marked with that same understanding and expression of heavenly kingdom justice. Amen.